0: Well, it's great to be able to worship with all of you and celebrate Easter with all of you today, and I'm especially honored to be invited into your home if you're watching through Faith Troy at home today. We are so excited to be able to celebrate with Easter, Easter with you and with your family. Before we get started today, a couple things I want to make sure that everybody knows about. Um, first, uh, the resurrection of Jesus reminds us that Jesus is who Jesus claimed to be, and it also means that everything that Jesus said was true. It meant that God was actually doing something brand new. He was doing something new in the world for the world. Something for you. Starting next week, we're going to begin a brand new sermon series talking about this brand new kingdom that Jesus has brought into our world. This kingdom that continues to grow, that he asks us to be a part of, and that Jesus continues to make happen in our lives and in our world today. So I hope that you will be part of this series with us. And... We know that during this past year, all of us have gone through so much and have experienced so much, um, so much that uh, really just cannot even be uh, captured into words. We also know that God's word is filled with hope. It's filled with healing. It's filled with promises for how God is with us, even in the most difficult times. And so we have put together a special series on YouTube. It's a five-part series, God's Weapons for Dealing with Mental Health. We hope that this will be something that is beneficial to you, to your family, to people that you care about. If you're watching on YouTube right now, make sure you like and subscribe our channel. You'll find out when this is released later this week. And for those of you who are here in the room with us, then you can watch this when you're home as well. Now, I absolutely love Easter, right? When you're the pastor and it's Easter, um, it, you know, everyone already kind of knows what you're going to talk about, right? Because um, this isn't, you know, hey, have you heard the one about, right? Um, no, this is actually the one that everyone's heard at least a little bit about because on Easter we celebrate the resurrection uh, of Jesus. And if you think about it, um, the, the message of Easter has never been more relevant for the modern world than it is right now. Because the message of Easter, it actually addresses our deepest fears and it brings to the surface our our deepest uh, emotions. And the truth is, um, pretty much all of our fears and all of our emotions have been front and center for this past year, right? I mean, is everything going to be all right? Is God going to take care of me? Is God going to take care of my family? Um, Is God aware of everything that's going on? Are we going to actually make it through this? Right? Does God care about any of this? Does God care about our nation? Does, does God even hear my prayers? In fact, the only time that perhaps the message of Easter was more relevant was the first Easter. Now, those of us who are followers of Jesus, we have actually had a bit of an advantage over this past year. Um, We have an advantage because we have something that we can look back on and something we can hang our hope on. But for these first century followers of Jesus, it was a very, very different story. In fact, this is the part of the story that I think many of us as followers of Jesus, we either misunderstand this or we miss this altogether. And perhaps if you're not a follower of Jesus, this might be the part of the story that nobody ever told you. See, here's what made it so difficult for Jesus' first century followers um, when Jesus was crucified. This is the part that we miss. When Jesus was crucified, when Jesus died, their hope died. Right? When Jesus was crucified, nobody believed that he was the Messiah. Nobody believed that he was the Savior of the world. Nobody. Nobody believed that Jesus was coming back from the dead. After Jesus was crucified, there were no Christians because there was no Christ. Right? It was lights out on everybody's faith. There was a broken-hearted mother, um, there was a a whole group of disillusioned fishermen, there were a whole pile of people who thought that they had spent a a whole season of their life um, wasting their life, but there were no Jesus followers, there were no Christians because there was no Christ. Think about that. In fact, the story of Jesus, apart from the resurrection, the story of Jesus isn't even worth telling. Apart from the resurrection, the story of Jesus isn't even worth documenting. Apart from the resurrection, Jesus is just another um, Jewish rabbi who, who went off the rails someplace. Apart from the resurrection, Jesus is nothing more than a, a wannabe Messiah who was executed by Rome. I mean, they come, right, and then, and then they go. And the people who were closest to Jesus, right, they are so excruciatingly honest. In fact, it's one of the reasons why you should take their account seriously. Because they do not write themselves into the story as heroes in the story. They write themselves into the story as doubters because, in fact, they doubted. Because they all expected Jesus to do what all dead people always do. They all expected him to stay dead. Nobody None of his followers, not even the most committed among them, nobody expected nobody, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all the authors of the New Testament, they are all crystal clear. Nobody was planning to keep the dream alive, and nobody was planning to keep this movement moving, right? And here's why. If Jesus couldn't keep himself alive, if Jesus could not keep Jesus alive, then what in the world was the point of trying to keep his movement alive? Because clearly, clearly, he was not who he claimed to be. And see, this is the issue. Jesus' teaching, and this might be new for some of you, but Jesus' teaching was not the center of his movement. It was actually the outrageous claims that Jesus made about himself. It was the outrageous claims that Jesus made about himself that kept the movement moving, and it is those outrageous claims that drove the religious leaders crazy. Right? It wasn't the healings, it wasn't the miracles, it wasn't most of his parables or his teaching. The truth is, most people didn't even understand most of his parables or his teachings. It was the fact that Jesus was relentless. He was relentless about attributing to himself things that only belong to God. Because everybody knows Jesus claimed that, that he could forgive sin, but everybody knows that only God, only God can forgive sin. Jesus actually said he was greater than the temple. I mean, think about that. Jesus said he was greater than Moses. But but who would actually say such a thing? Jesus said that he was the Lord of the Sabbath, right? But now Jesus is dead. And every single person who loved and who was devoted to Jesus had determined that they had been fooled, they had been tricked, that he was not clearly, he was not who he claimed to be, that clearly he lied, right? Because you cannot crucify the resurrection and the life. You cannot execute the Messiah. You cannot put the Son of Man to death. And now Jesus is dead. In fact, John, who is one of Jesus' closest followers, one of Jesus' closest friends, John tells us that later, after the crucifixion, Joseph of Arimathea, now notice the detail here, right? Very, very specific name, very specific individual. Joseph of Arimathea went and asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now again, why? Because you could not actually bury a crucified body. It was illegal. Part of the punishment for the crime, whatever the crime was, was when a person was crucified after they died, their body was taken off of the cross, it was thrown into the back of a wagon or a cart someplace, and it was hauled off to the dump where it was left to rot, or oftentimes even set on fire. It was illegal to bury a crucified body. But history tells us that Joseph of Arimathea was a connected person, that he was a wealthy person. And so because of that, he went with Pilate's permission and he came and he took the body of Jesus away. And John tells us that Joseph of Arimathea was not alone when this happened. He actually tells us that he was with somebody else, a man by the name of Nicodemus, who John introduces to us earlier in his story of the life of Jesus. John tells us that Joseph was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night, and Nicodemus brought with him, don't miss this, a mixture of myrrh and aloes weighing about 75 pounds. Think about this, 75 pounds of stuff used to embalm a body. Why? Because these men expected Jesus to do what dead people always do. Stay dead. And so John tells us that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, the two of them, they took Jesus' body and they wrapped it with the spices and the strips of linen. Don't miss this. Not one big large sheet. No, they took 75 pounds of stuff and then they took and put that on top of Jesus' body, and then they took a series of strips of linen and tied Jesus' body in that with those 75 pounds of stuff on top of him. They bound him in such a way that if by some freak chance he were still alive at this point, he would have suffocated. John tells us all of this, all of this was actually done in accordance with Jewish burial custom. He continues in verse 41 and he says this. He says, "At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden there was a new tomb. There was a cave in which no one had ever been laid. And because it was the Jewish day of preparation and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there." All this is John's way of saying that Joseph and Nicodemus were in fact in a hurry. That the sun was going down and when the sun would set the sabbath would begin and then none of this work would be allowed. And so Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they hurriedly prepared Jesus' body for burial. They put him into this tomb, into this cave, and they rolled the stone in front of it, and they left. And they, along with all the rest of Jesus' disciples, they disappear into the city. And suddenly, Suddenly, every single one of them is confronted with the overwhelming reality that the last three and a half years of their life has been a waste of life. Now, we don't know what they talked about that night. We don't know what they did that night. We don't know what they did on Saturday. But John tells us that early Sunday morning... Peter and John were awakened. Assuming they slept at all, they were awakened by a loud banging on the door. And certainly their first thought was, okay, oh no, the Romans have found us. But then they realize, right, Roman soldiers don't knock. They just kick the door in. And so Peter and John, they go down and they answer the door. And there standing at the door is Mary Magdalene. Now Mary, Mary was one of Jesus' most devoted female followers. She had followed Jesus for a long time because Jesus had delivered her. Jesus had performed a miracle for her. Mary was one of the many female followers of Jesus who was so grateful for Jesus. Because Jesus consistently elevated the dignity of women. He consistently elevated the dignity of children. Jesus consistently elevated the dignity of everyone. And Mary was so broken hearted like all the female followers of Jesus were when Jesus was crucified. And Mary is standing outside of this door and she's banging on this door. And, and Peter and John, they go and open the door. And, and Mary is there. She's panicked. She's sobbing. They can barely understand what she's saying. And she looks at Peter and she looks at John and she, she says to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. Right, we went to the tomb to make sure his body was properly prepared. The stone, it was already rolled away. And when we looked inside, there was no body. And, and Mary assumes, right, what anyone would assume not a miracle, not a resurrection. No one writes themselves into the story as a hero or even as a believer. Mary looked into an empty tomb and she assumed what anyone in the first century would assume. Someone has stolen the body. Someone has taken the body of our Lord and we don't know where they, whoever they are, we don't know where they put him. And John tells us that whereas Peter and himself had been hiding the night before, suddenly they they feel the urgency of this moment. And because Peter and John know the location of where Jesus' body has been laid, they go running, John says. They go running for the tomb. John, in fact, tells us that he, that Peter and the other disciple, this is actually John talking about himself, the other disciple started for the tomb. Both of us were running, John says, but the other disciple, meaning John, actually outran Peter. And he reached the tomb first. And John tells us that what he saw when he got to that tomb that day, it was not at all what he was expecting to see because John says, listen, I, I bent over and I looked inside that tomb and, and, and I could see um, these strips of linen lying there, but, um, but, but I'll be honest at this point, I, I, I didn't go in. And why didn't John go in? Because it was dark. Because it was a tomb. Right? He's no hero. Right, Notice the honesty here. John tells us that eventually, eventually the other disciple, Peter, the other Peter actually catches up to John. And when Peter catches up, John tells us that Peter, he ran straight into the tomb. And why does Peter run straight into the tomb? Because he's Peter. And that's what Peter would do. Peter acted too soon. He spoke too soon. He was always getting himself into trouble. And so, of course, of course, when Peter shows up, he runs straight into the tomb. And John says that what we saw in that moment, we saw the strangest thing. We saw something that we did not expect to see. Because when somebody steals a body, they take the body and everything with it. But what we saw in that moment, John says, it convinced us that the world, our world, had changed. That something happened. John says, we saw the strips of linen lying there. As well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. But the cloth... It was separate. It was still in the place that it should be, separated from the, the linen. There was no mess. This was not a rush job. Thieves would never take the time to neatly untie all of those strips of linen and then neatly pile them up someplace else in the tomb. Nobody would take the time to unembalm a body. And so John sees this and he finally musters up the courage to go inside the tomb. And he says, finally, finally, the other disciple, again, John speaking about himself, the one who had reached the tomb first, he says, I also went inside. And then John tells us, don't miss this, John tells us, he gives us the explanation as to what it was in this moment that actually restarted his faith. He actually gives us the sequence because see, John did not believe in this crazy idea that faith is just some random, emotional, illogical thing that just kind of hangs out there by itself someplace that is disconnected from reality, disconnected from every other event of life, disconnected from logic or intelligence or, or anything else. John did not believe that. That was not John's definition of faith. And so John tells us, speaking of himself, that when he went inside that tomb, he saw And he put two and two together and he believed. Suddenly, John's world changed. Suddenly, the resurrection of Jesus, it reframed his life. It reframed everything about his life. Because it dawned on John that everything Jesus taught was true. Everything that Jesus said about God the Father was true. John remembered that crazy conversation that he and Philip and the rest of the disciples had with Jesus just a couple of nights earlier and and Philip actually looked at Jesus and said to Jesus Jesus you could make this so easy on us just show us the father Jesus and that will be enough for us And, and John would say you know what Jesus said in that moment we all thought he was crazy because Jesus he just turned around and he looked at Philip and he looked at all of us and he said Philip don't you know me Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Philip, I'm as close to understanding what God is like in this world as you will ever get. And in this moment, it dawns on John. (laughs) Listen, I do not know where Jesus is right now, but clearly, clearly, he is risen. I saw him die, I I saw him, him, him embalmed, I saw him buried. And he has risen from the dead. And suddenly, suddenly in this moment, everything lines up for John. It's why later on, John would go to write these famous words. That in the beginning, in the beginning, John would say was the word. And and, and the word, um, don't ask me to explain it, John would say. I, I can just tell you that the word was actually God. And the word came and it became flesh and it made its dwelling. It literally, it literally camped out among us. It's why John would later on write, um, it's almost as if the, the light of the world, that it entered into the world and it lit up the world for us. And John and Peter and the rest of the disciples, they would all go on to eventually see Jesus alive from the dead. They would have conversations with him. They would sit and eat meals with him. In fact, John records many of these conversations for us. You should read them. But one of these conversations in particular I want us to look at together today because it goes right to the heart of what Easter is all about. Because when Jesus was crucified and everybody thought the game was over everybody scattered. Peter and John stayed in town but all the other disciples they all left. Some of them actually went back to Bethany where Lazarus was from but the others we don't know where they went. They just knew that now there was a price on their head and so they left and one of those disciples was Thomas and John actually gives us Um, the detail of Jesus' first conversation with Thomas. And he says this. He says that Thomas, who was one of the disciples, one of the 12, John would say, he was one of us, but he was not with us. He was not with the rest of us when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told Thomas, Thomas, listen, we have seen the Lord. Right, Because Jesus' sightings were actually occurring all throughout Jerusalem and the greater vicinity at this point. And apparently Thomas heard about this that people were saying that Jesus was back from the dead. And so Thomas, he makes his way back to the city. Eventually he reconnects with the disciples and the rest of the disciples are like, okay, Thomas, Thomas, where have you been? You're not going to believe this, Thomas, but Jesus. Jesus is alive. But Thomas isn't superstitious. In fact, Thomas feels like he just spent the last season of his life wasting his life. So he's certainly not going to spend the rest of his life chasing a fairy tale or a ghost story or a rumor. And so don't miss this, Thomas looks at his closest friends and he says to him, Guys, come on, listen, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and I put my finger where the nails were and I put my hands into his side, I am not, I will not. I will not believe. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. Thomas spent three years of his life with Jesus. I mean, he had seen the miracles, right? Thomas saw Jesus literally feed thousands and thousands and thousands of people using just a couple of small fish and a few loaves of bread. I mean, Thomas saw Jesus heal people. Thomas saw people who had been born unable to walk, suddenly able to stand up and walk with just a word. I mean, it, it is not hard to believe when you see the dead raised. It, it is not difficult to believe when you see someone born blind, instantly given their sight. But see, now we find Thomas in a very, very different position. Right, because now Thomas' faith has been shaken. Right, the experiences of life in this past season of life, hello, have shaken him and shaken what it is that he thought that he believed? We actually have a word for this, right? In fact, this word might be your story right now. Thomas is experiencing doubt. Now, here's why this is so important, because this event actually teaches us something that that you, you may have never considered before. Which is that doubt can actually be a legitimate space to encounter the living God. In fact, doubt can actually be an invitation back to a deeper and a richer faith. Not a new faith, but rather an old faith in a new way. Right? When something happens to us, we experience something in life, we see something in life, something happens to us, something happens to somebody that we love, and it causes us to, to question and to think, okay, what do I really believe about God? And, 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 and then all of a sudden we start wondering, okay, do I really believe in Jesus? Right In this moment, Thomas is experiencing what we have come to call in our world today the deconstruction of his faith. He's trying to figure out what's really true. And what does he really believe? And why? Why does he actually believe this? And see, what makes this experience so difficult, particularly for those of us who have kind of grown up in church or grown up with a family that's always been a part of church, who have always just kind of, you know, believed in Jesus for our entire life, is when, when we begin to experience doubt, oftentimes, oftentimes we begin to think that the reason we're doubting it is because we don't believe anymore. When most of the time, most of the time that is not the case. In fact, often the fact that you're experiencing doubt is a sign that you're trying to figure out what it is you believe. Right? Doubt is often a sign that there is something deep inside of you that wants truth. And, and listen, that's not bad. Right? That's That's beautiful. But see, for those of us who are watching this happen in the life of someone that we love, in the life of someone that we care about, the temptation for us is to say, okay, let's fix this, right, let's fix this, just watch this video, just read this book, just listen to this message, listen to this sermon, and everything's going to be fine. But, and see, this is so important, in this moment of time, the person who is experiencing doubt most likely is not looking for someone to just come in and drop a whole bunch of answers on them. What they're looking for is for someone to walk with them. In fact, I would argue that doubt is the Holy Spirit's invitation back to community. There is a reason, right? There is a reason why Thomas returns to where the rest of the disciples are When he hears the stories of Jesus being risen from the dead. And notice what John says next. A week later. Right? A week later. Don't miss this. Jesus allows Thomas to live. To live with his doubt. Why? Because as Dallas Willard once very famously said, From time to time... God actually allows us to stew in our doubts because it makes us people who are worthy of truth. A week later, John tells us, And Jesus' disciples, they're in the same house once again. This time, however, John tells us that Thomas is with them. And John says, listen, I know this sounds crazy. I know you're going to think I'm nuts, but I promise you, I swear to you, the doors to the house, they were all locked. And then all of a sudden, Jesus, he just appeared and he looked at all of us and he said, peace be with you. And he said, peace be with you because we were all freaked out at this point because the doors were locked and somehow Jesus showed up. But then Thomas, then John tells us that Jesus looked at Thomas. And he said to Thomas, Thomas, put your finger here. Thomas, see my hands? Thomas, reach out your hand. I I want you to put it into my side. I, I love this. Thomas, it's me. It's me. And what Jesus says next is so amazing. But unfortunately in our modern English translation, the, the, the Greek just gets a little wonky. Because Jesus looks at Thomas and he says to Thomas, Thomas, it is me. It is me and he says to Thomas Thomas do not be unbelieving but believing do not be unbelieving but believing Jesus waits but he does show up and when he shows up Thomas worships him with his whole heart and Thomas looks at Jesus and he says to Jesus my Lord and don't miss this, my God. These words, spoken by a doubter, stand as the greatest testimony ever given by any of the apostles. Who is Jesus? He is my God. Easter. Easter is for doubters. Doubters are always welcome at the empty tomb. Now, you may know this, or you may not, but you may know that we actually have a letter from one of Jesus' brothers by the name of James, And what you may not know, however, is that we actually have two letters from two of Jesus' brothers, both of which did not believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be prior to the crucifixion. However, after the resurrection, both of them came to believe that Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God. Now, the second letter that we have is very short. It's only about a chapter long, and it was written by Jesus' brother, Jude. And in it... Jude reminds all of us who are followers of Jesus, he says, be merciful, right? Be merciful to those who doubt, right? Implying that as followers of Jesus, there's always going to be people with doubts among us. And when we meet them, when we meet them, we're to be kind, right? We're to be gentle, that we're never to view someone with doubts or questions as a problem, but rather we should see them as a gift from the living God. Now, you might not know what actually happens to Thomas after this conversation with Jesus, but Thomas becomes a missionary. In fact, today, 20 generations after this event... 30 million followers of Jesus in India are celebrating Easter. They are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead because a doubter allowed his doubts about Jesus to bring him back into a community of followers of Jesus who walked alongside him knowing that he had doubts, where he could experience the presence of Jesus and the truth of Jesus even while he had questions about Jesus. And so to the person here who's watching today and who's hearing all this and you're struggling with what you believe and you don't know what you believe or if you believe and you've got all kinds of questions and you think, okay, can God ever use me? Does God care about me? Do my questions and my doubt, do those things make God angry at me? May you hear the voice of the living God say to you today, your story, it is not done. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And while you're waiting for Jesus to reveal himself to you, you're always welcome here. If you ever wanted a place to belong, but all you've ever felt is condemned if you ever wanted a community of people where you could ask questions about who is Jesus and who is God um, but, but but you don't even know if you believe or or what you believe if you ever wanted to belong to a place where you could explore the presence of Jesus and the power of Jesus and the truth of Jesus but you don't know what you believe you are always welcome here. We will not try to fix you. We just want to be with you when Jesus reveals himself to you. And what John tells us next is so amazing. Because Jesus leaves his immediate context. Right? Jesus looks through the ages, and he looks at you, and he looks at you, and he looks at you, and he looks at, he looks at, he looks at me. Jesus actually leaves his, his immediate context. He knows that this conversation with Thomas is going to be talked about for centuries and for generations. And so with you in mind, and with me in mind jesus says to thomas and to all those that were gathered that day in that house blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed blessed is that future generation blessed are those people that come after you blessed are those people that you tell John, blessed are those people who will read your account. Matthew, blessed are those who will read your account. Thomas, blessed are those people who will hear your testimony. Blessed is that future generation that hears and that believes but who have not seen. And then John closes his account of the life of and the resurrection of Jesus with an invitation. It's a, a simple invitation. It's an invitation for all of us. In fact, it's an invitation that John um, offers and makes repeatedly all throughout his gospel. John says, listen, I want you to believe um, that my testimony, that my testimony about Jesus is true. I, I want you to believe that Jesus is who Jesus claimed to be. And once you're convinced of that, John would say, then I want you to place your trust in Jesus. John says, I I want you to believe that, and then I want you to trust in. I want you to believe that, and then I want you to trust in. Here's how John says it. John tells us this, that Jesus, he performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples. John says, we saw them. We were there. We we all saw them. But listen, I I did not write about all of them in in my letter, in my document, in in my book. But these, these ones that I have written about, these ones that I've selected, these conversations that I've selected, these miracles that I've selected, these are written so that you may know what happened. They've been written by me, John. I've ordered them in such a way that you may believe that Jesus, that he is the Messiah, That he is the Son of God. That's the believe that part. I want you to believe what Jesus said about himself, but then I also want you to trust in. And why? So that you may have life. So that in your grief you may have hope. So that in your fear you may have courage. So that in your pain, you may have comfort. So that when the enemy comes to steal and kill and destroy, you are reminded that the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Because, because then came that morning, that sealed the promise, that punctuated the promise, that authenticated the promise. His buried body, it began to breathe. And out of the silence that we thought would be silence forever, the roaring lion declared, The grave, it has no claim on you or you or you.